Hello everyone and welcome to Side Dish, an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines relating to the science of food and developing your career in a rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkham. Hardly a day goes by without hearing yet another story about the challenges we face with water. Or to be more precise, both the shortages and the floods. Water is not only critical to growing food we eat, it's also essential to the downstream processing of that food, either as an ingredient or for heating in the case of steam or cooling, cleaning and sanitising, even conveying. And it's also used for disposal of certain waste products. So today we're going to be talking about the challenges we all face with this critical asset, our water. What solutions might exist now in the future? And to ensure that equitable supply of potable water and the roles that we can play going forward. Along the way, we're going to explore lots of different aspects of water, not just the least of which is how we can ensure water quality and safety for everybody. We have two amazing guests today, Danielle Galay and John Robinson. Danielle is a water resource strategist and urban planner. She was the Director of Water Resources for the Metropolitan Planning Council in Chicago before founding her own firm, Waterwell. Danielle completed a Master's at the University of Illinois and is now an adjunct there teaching master's students about water in our built environment. John Robinson is an investor in early stage innovative technologies that address water issues. He is a partner at Mazarine Ventures and a board member at both the Box of Rainwater and the Wetlands Initiative. John has been a consultant for Deloitte and has also worked in China for quite a number of years. John is a graduate of John Hopkins University. Danielle and John, welcome to Side Dish. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. So can I ask you to both to tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved in water? Danielle, how about you lead us off? Sure. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm a water geek. How did I come to be that? <laughs> I grew up on the shores of Lake Superior in Duluth, Minnesota. And as an adult, I now live on the shores of Lake Michigan in Chicago. So water has always been very pervasive from a surface water standpoint. I love to be out in the outdoors. I love to geek out about it. Uh, when I was in grad school studying urban planning and public policy, I started reading about the Western water wars here in the United States. And then I started reading about water around the world. And for me, it became what I consider the critical issue for human civilizations to figure out in this century how we move forward with our relationship to water and livability. So I was hooked and I've now worked in the water sector for over 15 years and happy to be here. Wow. Oh, interesting. And John, how about you? How did you get into water? Uh, as you mentioned, I, I lived in China for a number of years. I was there for seven years. And when I was there, the air got a lot of attention, a lot of airtime for the air. I think they called it air, air apocalypse in Beijing. And we've all seen the footage of the gray skies. And that was, of course, tragic. And I thought to myself, what about the water? Mm. No one's talking about water. And I went to my kitchen and I smelled it. It smelled like chlorine. So I started digging into the water crisis in China. And if we think we have water problems in the United States, <laughs> nothing compared to the water stress that China has. Um, so I started to research on my own. Um, and as you mentioned, I worked at Deloitte. And when I was in, uh, I had a consulting uh, uh, project in Deloitte that was focused on environmental engineering. And I really got hooked. Uh, and then um, one thing I realized in all my research is that um, there's a, an abundance of technologies out there 
that can actually solve water, period. We can, so we've already solved water to an extent. We have the technologies already exist to solve all the water problems. They're just not being deployed. So I've decided to dedicate the rest of my career to accelerating um, technologies to get in the people's hands that, that need them to mitigate risk and ensure that they have the quality of water they need for whatever their purpose is, whether it's agriculture or in your home or manufacturing or food and beverage. So I, I come at this from a technology perspective and identifying companies with innovative hardware software solutions that can solve water and getting those in people's hands. Well, you've really twigged a, a nerve for me in terms of the abundance of technologies, and, I, and I'd like to come back to that. But I think it's better that we start by framing out the, the challenge that we're in at the moment. And I think most listeners would be well aware of how critical water is to life on Earth. Uh, however, for most of us in developed countries, we probably have extremely little appreciation for how much of the population of the world live in water stress regions or even how the water is handled before it appears at it magically at our tap. So given that, I wonder if I can ask you to paint a picture for us of what life would be like if the current water shortages in the southwest of the U.S. become permanent or even if it spreads to a wider part of the country. Danielle, why don't you start us off with that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I would like to almost back it up to a larger global conversation about understanding that we have the same amount of water on planet Earth that we've always had. Mm. The trick is always figuring out where is it located, in what form is it located? So I'm referring to liquid solid gas. Uh, how? What's the condition of it? How clean is it? And how much are we needing to use? So it, that is the mystery behind how humans and our ecosystems interact with water as a part of that. So the issues that are impacting water today, specifically for humans, I would say are there's a couple of them. One is increasing population. So in 2021, this year, global population is at 7.9 billion people. We are seeing an increase in water pollution, whether that's due to urbanization, deforestation, chemical waste and industrial waste. Um, but we're is seeing an increase in that the water we do have, it's not as clean as it used to be. Mm. And we also have what I would consider a lack of leadership uh, and issues with regards to policies and frankly, the politics related to water management today. Uh, and then the fourth, but certainly not the last elephant in the room, I would say, is climate change. Right. So we're seeing dry is drier, wet is wetter. We have snowstorms in Texas now, We ha right? Like climate change is a game changer for the water sector for human civilization. And we're feeling the pressures. Yes, that's a really interesting way of putting it. And, and you know, if I could just spin that back to you a little bit, you know, if you, if, as you said at the start, I mean, we've got the same amount of water on the planet today as we had when the, quite some time ago, it's, the, the molecules haven't changed. Um, so arguably climate change is just repositioning water into different places. It, it, would that, that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. What form it is and where it's located. Hmm. Interesting. So, John, what's your view of, of the challenge that we face on water? How would you map it out? Would, would you use similar uh, approach to Danielle or you've got a different view? The, the challenge with water and raising awareness of the crisis is that um, everybody already knows what water is. 
take a shower with it, you drink it, you cook with it. When I say cryptocurrency, oh, this is interesting. I've got to pay attention to this. I say drones. Oh, this is interesting. SpaceX or whatever. These are topics that people will sit up in their chair or vaccination. Oh, I got to listen to this. This is important. People are curious and their minds will open up around all these topics where they feel like I need to know this. You mentioned water. Oh yeah, I already know water. Oh yeah, they're like running out of it or something. Yeah, boom, on to the next thing. People already feel like they know it because they, they do know it. We're all experts and we know what water tastes like. We know the right temperature. We know what it feels like. We know when it's wrong or off to a degree. And so one of the problems is raising awareness amongst people around the world around water. When we're competing for bandwidth against other topics that are more exciting, more interesting. And that's my, my worldview is that we, the industry of water, humanity has to figure out how to raise awareness of water and message better. So one of the things that, that I think would be helpful is in terms of framing, if you want to understand the value of water, understand starvation. If you want to understand the value of water, understand health. If you want to understand the value of water, understand power generation. If you want to understand the value of water, understand economic development. So ironically, if you want to understand water, you have to understand other things that water drives. I know that's water people. It's like, no, we got to talk about water. I feel like for the broad, broader audience out there, we can talk about water till we're blue in the face, no pun intended, but I don't think that messaging is, is working and people and especially elected officials, it's not resonating. And I'm interested in Danielle's point on this, on the messaging side of water. I feel like it hasn't really worked. It's getting better maybe, but my worldview is we've got to talk about other things like in order to deliver the message of water. Right. So, so Danielle made the the comment that um, you know the, one of the big issues is leaderships and, and and politics and 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 your your interpretation or one interpretation of that might be the uh, uh, that we take it for granted. So, do you think our leadership and our politicians are taking water for granted like we do as consumers when we just turn on the tap and expect it to be clean and drinkable? So nobody takes public health and safety for granted. COVID disease, sickness, whatever. Water is framed as an environmental problem, which it is, but I think it should also be framed as a public health and safety problem. Lead in the pipes has nothing to do with climate change. Yes. Zero. Lead in the pipes is a public health and safety risk, and that's a public health problem. Arsenic in the water, PFAS in the water. That's the public health and safety business, not the water business. And when you frame it that way, people sit up in their chairs straighter they say, oh, public health and safety, i got to listen to this. The allocated money will be there if you talk public health and safety. Mm. I'm interested mm. in Danielle's thoughts on that too. So it's a frame, the framing of water. But then you're right though, Danielle, climate is accelerating all these problems and that's more of an environmental problem. But floods and drought, it's not a water problem. It's a water crisis. Drought means economic stress. Livelihoods are in jeopardy and floods kill people. So that's yeah, probably yeah. a safety risk. And you frame it that way, then people are like, oh, this is important. People's livelihoods are at risk and people's lives are at risk. This isn't a water problem. This is a human This is a human livelihood problem. Interesting. So, Danielle, give me your, your views on that. 
Yeah. So I would also, I agree with what John is saying on this point. I would also say that circling back to climate change, it's not an environmental problem. It's a human problem. Correct. It is, it is not about planet Earth's survival. It's about humans and the structures and civilizations we've set up survival. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we're going to talk about climate change, which is actually politically, maybe not as much in the United States as we like to see, but globally, very much a, a topic that politicians are talking about and policies are being forecasted. We have COP26 coming up um, in for the UN in, later in October. And um, I would say that understanding the impact of climate change on human economies and that relationship to water usage is very critical. Mm. Um, and so being able to talk about water through different lenses is how I'm interpreting what John is saying, uh, with different motivational points that others will sit up and listen to is absolutely a very important strategy. But I also do believe that there's more and more, whether it's the crises we see happening with uh, lead in pipe or the flooding or the lack of water for agriculture in arid states in this country, water is getting more airplay and attention. But I also would, but I, so for me, it would be a yes and. Wherever we can start to connect the dots related to how our relationship to water management and how that provides livability, not just about drinking water or staying clean and public health, but it's also our whole economies are based off of it. So we had an opportunity as a society to reflect on Flint, Michigan and say maybe there but by the grace of God go us, but we kind of blew it off and said, oh, that's just them. Uh, do, do you think that's that's part of the issue here that we compartmentalize an issue we do see with a critical resource such as water and and blow it off as as somebody else's problem? What's your view on that? I would say, um, so I have a different interpretation of what happened with Flint, Michigan, knowing that um, many states and even at the federal level were updating the lead and copper rule. Uh, the state of Illinois just passed updated, more stringent lead and copper, like we need to get rid of lead service lines in our community. So um, that crisis, while it may feel a little distanced and be like, oh, that's really unfortunate for those people over there, it has trickled down throughout the whole water industry such that now we're seeing requirements and legislation put into play to replace that that lead in water, specifically the lead infrastructure. You'd have to think, though, that passing legislation is is um, really just not not a huge impact on on the real problem because passing legislation doesn't change all the pipes that exist and have existed for you know decades. So how does how does that passing legislation actually change anything for the consumer or for us as as consumers of water? So the legislation that I'm referring to is actual legislation that says not only you're not able to use lead in water infrastructure, but that we have to go in and inventory and actually remove lead service lines from usage. So it's an actual, there's an action happening there with regards to getting rid of lead in that legislation. Mm. So I'm hearing a lot of politics from both of you in terms of how water is is actually uh, treated and used and managed. Um, and it, one view is that maybe even our cities and farmers could be competing for water. What's your view of that silent competition that appears to be happening? John, let's take that one to you now. It's Yeah, municipalities, companies, corporates that use water for their, their activities and agriculture and conservation 
are all competing for water resources and conservation of, of aquatic life and animals. They're, they're in the mix as well. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a heavy competition out there for limited amount of resources in certain places like here in Arizona or Utah, Nevada. This competition will always exist. Everyone needs water for their purposes. The question in my mind and the enabling tool, technology to enable a, a fair allocation and a civil exchange is, and, and Daniel, you mentioned earlier, where is the water? How much is there? How much rain is coming? How much water is in the aquifer? If humanity can get better diagnostics tools on where the problems are and how, what's the extent of the, where are the lead service lines? Where is the flooding? Where is the drought? How much water is beneath our city? Like Joliet, Illinois, they're running out of water. They probably could have known that 15 or 20 years ago. So humanity needs to get better at diagnostics. Testing and monitoring, testing for quality and monitoring for flooding or drought and near future weather will enable a, a more civil discourse amongst the competing parties for limited water resources. So my worldview is that if, if we can invest in better diagnostic tools, it will help mitigate a significant amount of water risk for companies, farmers, municipalities and conservation. Does that get back to the comment you made earlier about the abundance of technologies? Do you, are, there, are there technologies that um, you know the average person doesn't know about that's coming down the pipe that will help us with this uh, better diagnostic tools that you, you you're referring to? Yeah, there's 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 no shortage of entrepreneurs out there inventing solutions to create more visibility into what's going on with X water problem. What's some of the ones you're most excited about? Quality monitoring, lead lead monitoring. So there's a whole genre of everyone kind of understands what a lab is. You take a grab sample of water, you send it to a lab, they test it, and you get the results. Usually takes a few days or a week or more. There's a genre of technologies we're really excited about that's we call lab on a chip. Mm -hmm. So imagine something like a playing card or a credit card, where you could put a little bit of water on there, and after five or ten minutes, it lights up red or green for presence of lead, yes or no. Right. There's no yellow light. There's no yellow light. Oh, maybe it's in there. We don't know. It's like you either have lead or you don't. That card lights up red or yellow or red or green. You scan the QR code. It goes up to the cloud. This place at this date had lead in the water. And you, if you, if and these cards, when you're done with it, throw it out. Piece of paper, basically. Mm. So it's consumable. And you can print out millions of these things and give them to people and say, test your water every Monday. And then take a QR, take a photo of the thing, and then it goes up to the cloud. And then you're sort of democratizing water quality data, and you're enabling citizen science, enabling people to get involved. So there's about five or six technology companies out there. We call them lab and a chip. And it's not really a test as much as it is a scan. Right. And so you can do it for lead. You can do it for arsenic. You can do it for mercury. You can do it for cryptosporidium, E. coli. And so we're really excited about the future of getting water testing and scanning tools in in people's hands and let them empower them to take control of their water quality and then share that on social media or share it with decision makers that's a really exciting area um, from the technology mm -hmm. side but um, and, and these technologies and generate data and data informs policy right Danielle I fully agree data can be used to inform policy 
So, Danielle, can you can you lead on and tell us more about what you think of you know the question I just asked John about uh, you know the competition or the pseudo competition that cities and farmers may be already in that maybe that neither of them are actually acknowledge they're actually fighting with each other they probably are. Yeah, it's. Um, I think you had mentioned the the silent, you know, competition. Mm. In many cases, it's not so silent. <laughs> <laughs> However, what what I want to back up to and answering that question is kind of painting a picture of of looking at specifically agriculture and the food and beverage industry. So, ag is the largest consumer of fresh water in the world. It's estimated about seventy percent of water used. Um, the largest user use of that is crop irrigation. And if we look at the United States, the state of California and Texas are by far the largest water users in our country. So those regions are becoming more and more arid. So it begs the question, is that the direction we should head or not? Likewise, on the food processing side, we have cleaning processes in a facility can account for almost up to 60% of the total water consumption. Mm. And oftentimes the wastewater coming out of food processing facilities give the local wastewater utility quite the headache mm-hmm. in needing to figure out how to clean up that waste product. Right. So I'm painting a kind of like ugly picture about egg coming from water. And I, I want to acknowledge that. But what I want to speak to is that I love food. I am a huge supporter of agriculture and food production. And what's important is figuring out that if this is an industry that has such a huge impact on the use of water, how does it be a good neighbor, not just in the good spirit of stewardship, but also for its own bottom line? And since it has such an impact on water supply and water quality, that means the good news is it has a huge opportunity to be a role in helping with the solutions down the road. And John is talking about some of those solutions, but you know, we could go into the laundry list that listeners probably already know about with regards to how to use water more efficiently, both in agriculture as well as in food processing. So being a good neighbor in taking action on that will only help with the relations and the tension between water users. From what you've observed, where are the lead candidates that uh, uh, processes ought to be looking towards in order to reduce their consumption of uh, this wastewater and their arguably pollution of the water for to be not to put too fine a point on it? Yeah, sure. So on agricultural side, there's you know, and John can speak more to probably specific technologies, but soil moisture retention, groundwater recharge, efficient irrigation. The use of ecological systems such as wetlands, riparian buffers, tree planting, these are different areas within agriculture that those types of best management practices really have an impact on how much water is needed to produce a particular yield of crop. In the food processing and food and beverage processing, we're looking at how you understand the water footprint within your plant where conservation and efficiency uh, equipment can be used, practicing reuse, and of course, you know, that ongoing monitoring. So examples, leak detection, automatic shutoff nozzles, reuse where appropriate within the facility of water, and then that kind of real-time monitoring, that short interval data to be able to make game time choices with regards to the efficiency of water use. These are some of the practices that are available with specific technologies. 
So it's, we're not just talking about uh, reusing. We're talking about um, we're talking about limiting and, and controlling the use as well. So when we get into the reusing part, you start to wonder whether consumers are on board with some of the reusing elements that we've talked about. So once you take that waste stream water, you put it through a reprocessing and put it back into the water supply. How, um, in your opinion and the research you've seen, how are willing consumers uh, uh, to reuse and reconsume water that's already been used? I would say if you were to put it out there for public comment, they're not quite excited about it. Right. It's a case of within a facility, if you are, know that you are using clean standard water and then processes to clean that and reuse it again, therein lies what the best practice is. So I like to joke, you know, we're all a little sketchy when it comes to the idea of treating our wastewater to potable drinking water standards, which by the way, we absolutely have the technology for and could do closed loop systems. But I like to say, well, we've already been drinking dinosaur pee since <laughs> time immemorable. Like, you know, somebody's wastewater stream is somebody else's drinking water stream. And it's a huge loop globally. Uh, we are already using wastewater, treating it, and then turning it into drinking water. It's been this closed loop again, relating back to we've always had the same water on the planet. Yeah, and Mother Nature's been doing the recycling for us and now we're finding that we're having to give her a helping hand and, and develop uh, even more advanced uh, techniques so that we can do it for ourselves. So, so John, I'm, I'm really interested in, in your perspective on, on this uh, water reuse and recycling piece, particularly given your experience in uh, China. I would imagine that you would have seen a lot of uh, water reuse and reprocessing there. Tell, tell me about what you've seen and what you think works and doesn't work. Not enough. There's not enough water reuse and water recycling uh, projects around the world. It's getting better. There's more and more coming online all the time, but not anywhere close to where we need to be. Um, China is, I don't know if China is a, a great example of it. Um, you know, the, it, it. In my mind, it all comes back to understanding how much water you have available. You might not need to reuse and recycle. There's certainly some places in the world you can use water and you can treat it and return it to nature and let nature treat it. If you if you want to do reuse, that means because you're in a dry, arid region like California or Texas, Daniel mentioned, and those places you'll want to do it. But the way I look at climate change is that we don't really know that five years from now, California could be just like get the biggest rainstorms and huge snowpack. And all of a sudden there's like, well, then why are we investing $20 million in a reuse plant mm. when we have tons of water coming our way? Right. And I know it's a foregone conclusion that's the aridification and it's drought and we don't really know. I mean, the, it's anyone's guess what Mother Nature is going to do with storms and rain and drought. It seems like the aridification of California is continuing. It seems like that. We just don't really know for sure where we're going to be in five years. California had a drought a few years ago, and then all of a sudden, 2017, huge snowstorms, and they had the biggest snowpack they've had in like 30 years. Mm. All the rains in January were like tons of rain. Water problems over. And here we are in 2021, and it's back to drought. So 
as you can sense in my remarks, it all comes back to diagnostics. What are we working with here? And that will inform your decision on, do we need to drop 20 million to do a reuse plant? Do we need to recycle our water? Or maybe we don't. So that those are big capital projects that municipalities need to be careful about investing taxpayer money or ratepayer money and stuff like that when maybe they don't need to. Some places are going to be wetter and some places are going to be drier. So cities and communities and farmers need to understand what they're working with in the next five years. So at one final point on this, we, we're really excited about the, the genre of technologies that we call seasonal forecasting. Not weather forecasting, like it's going to rain tomorrow or it's going to be cold. But, for example, this fall, pick, I don't know, pick on Austin, Texas. I don't know why. Austin's going to get 20% more rain this fall than they normally get. But over the winter time, they're going to get actually less rain than they usually get. That would be really helpful insights for decision makers that want to manage water. Or maybe it goes the other way. They get 20% less rain. So those insights can inform policy and capital decisions. And we're really excited about um, tools like that. So they sound like excellent tools and, and obvious that we all should be using that. I mean, I completely agree with you. It makes no sense to invest in a massive recycling project in one part of the country when climate change is predicting that they're going to be inundated with water going forward. Um, so... In your experience, uh, the decision makers in our society, and on a very broad bucket there, of course, are they beginning to use these diagnostic tools or do you think the tools are still being built? Where, where are we at with the, the diagnostic tools you referred to, John? Unfortunately, diagnostic tools oftentimes just displace people. And there's a whole status quo and an incumbent, incumbent industry of consulting that likes complexity. Problem solvers. And if there's no problem, then they're out of business. <laughs> I know that sounds cynical, but <laughs> there's a whole industry of consultants that sell complexity and really, I mean, good intentions and they want to solve, but they really don't have any interest in solving the problems because if they do, they're out. I know that sounds cynical and it's crazy, but this, the, the incumbent players are, are not adapting technologies because it unbundles their value a little bit. Interesting. Interesting. disagree with me in this, but there's a lot of people out there whose careers are tied to man hours and work and this tool is going to come along and it's going to, this is, this is not good for me right. because now what right. am I going to do if this tool does it for me, the computer is replacing me. That trend is going to continue whether people are like it or not. It's just not happening fast enough. Right. That's my point of view. So, so Danielle, you've spent a lot of your career in the public policy side of managing water. And that seems to be a little different from the what I think John was referring to and more consulting side of the politics of water. Um, tell me your view on, on uh, what you think the future of, of predicting where the challenges will be going forward. Are, are people actually using these diagnostic tools or, or is it uh, still a little bit uh, out there and not, not being absorbed yet? Well, so if we're talking about... Uh, human utility, water utilities, whether that's water supply, wastewater, stormwater utilities. I have worked with them. I've worked with the consultants and even their elected officials who oftentimes are making those very local decisions about capital improvement projects and investments in those utilities. And I would say that, uh, you know, we have over 150,000 community water systems in the United States alone. 
And so it's the breadth of who you reach to see who can take up adoption of these best practices, utilizing uh, data management to be able to make better decisions is vast and it's hard. And most of those utilities serve less than 5,000 individuals. So you're talking about scale and you're talking about resources across a vast array of different utilities. Now, that is the picture there. I would say there is uptick from those larger utilities that serve highly large urbanized areas, but that is related to water supply, wastewater, and drinking, and excuse me, and stormwater. If we're talking about larger agricultural systems who oftentimes have their own water irrigation systems, they're not necessarily plugged into a water utility of any sort. You know, those diagnostic systems for them, I, I couldn't speak to if that the industry is able to access those and if they're using them. And so, but I would say that even if you are able to use them and you're able to read the tea leaves, so to speak, on what's coming down the pike to be able to make decisions, there is absolutely a case to be made about improving your efficiencies of water usage, regardless of what those indicators are saying, mm. whether or not it's from a stewardship standpoint, from a harvest yield standpoint, or from a basic bottom line standpoint. The cost of water um, is not going down. Mm. And, the, and we're going to need to figure out how to share it. Well, I was certainly incredibly surprised just then with the number you mentioned there of 150,000 community water systems. And that, that just strikes me as an amazing amount of fragmentation of decision-making and inability to coordinate uh, solutions. What's, what's your view on whether we as a society ought to consolidate and, and roll that up into a, a more structured, uh, planned way of managing uh, this precious resource. Yeah, so work is already being done on what I would probably refer to with regards to regionalization of water service. And we're starting, not at nearly at the level and speed that we need to be doing, to do regionalization of service. And that can, there's a whole spectrum of what we mean by regionalization of, of service. It could be that neighboring communities come together and they're now all part of one distribution system um, and build at the same or you know varying rates within that system. Or it could mean that uh, na- somewhat neighboring systems are sharing costs for administration and running of their facilities. Or those communities are going in together in joint purchasing for materials, chemicals, what have you that they need. So there's a there's a range of what we can mean by shared services and regionalization. But fundamentally, water is a local issue as well as a regional and global issue. And so the particulars of we can't underestimate the value of the training and skill set of water operators to understand their local water conditions and run those plants such that when that water coming out of those pipes is drinkable for us. Right. And those are local conditions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really love that idea of water is something that it touches us all from a local, regional and the global uh, area. And, And I think that takes me really back to 
you know, our listenership here is mostly uh, food scientists, uh, technologists working within the, the food space somewhere. And I have to ask you to maybe give them some advice. And when we've talked today about politics, we've talked about climate change, we've talked about advanced tools that are coming online. And I think we we want to give them some suggestions as to uh, what it is that you would want food scientists to know about uh, water and their role in helping us get to a better place. So, John, would you like to lead us off on that? Seed tech. Seed. Seed tech. Tell me more. <laughs> so if you can grow the same amount of corn with 20% less water, that's all in the seed. It's a drought-resistant seed. Strain of a seed, whether it's oats or barley or corn or pistachios, develop a seed that can generate the same economic output using less water. Right. That's not preposterous. People are working on that now. Right. And we just need more of those seeds to get the market and allows people to use less water to get the same output. Number one, that's a really interesting area that we're really excited about in the next 10 years. And I know seed companies have bad reputations. So. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, but anyways, it's, it's an interesting area of inquiry and we're digging into that space more. Another really interesting area is aquaculture, growing protein, fish, food, not out in the ocean, indoors or inland. Could be outdoors, but not in the northern part of your climates. But indoor aquaculture, where you're growing fish in a building, and those fish come out, and you've got protein for people to eat. It's closer to the markets. Imagine a world where major markets like Boston, Chicago, and Las Vegas—they've got fish farms outside of town, and every day there's a truck that comes in bringing fresh fish. Now, mm. is it going to taste yeah. as good as wild caught salmon? Uh, probably not, because animals need the nature with diagnostics tools you can mimic nature by adding certain biology and adding a temperature and changing the temperature and changing the oxygen level water. so aquaculture and and of course fish is less toxic for the world i mean the way it's done now is bad for the oceans but if you can control 100 percent controlled biome you can grow fish so those are two areas where the food industry should be looking for innovation and putting dollars to work in those two areas. And those are areas that there's no shortage of entrepreneurs and there's no shortage of vision. And there's some venture funds that are focused on these things as well. So there's an ecosystem of early stage stuff coming to market and the giants are advised to embrace that and support it financially. I mean, you go to the grocery store, it's like this fish was grown 20 miles from here and it's Atlantic salmon. It's like, how is that possible? It's like, yeah, way more sustainable fashion than growing in the ocean, polluting the ocean and trucking it across country. And economically, animals out in the ocean, they get all kinds of viruses and there's problems and the storms. And if you grow it indoors, you can control 100 percent of the biome, which means a healthier fish mm -hmm. and you have more money. So those are two areas that we're interested in. Cool. So, Danielle, what advice would you give to the food scientists that are working in the industry and what sort of things that they should be looking at or trying to control or trying to do? Yeah. So what I would say is uh, two things. One, paying particular attention to where you set up shop. Where, what are you located next to? Where are the resources that you'll need and being appropriate with that? So where, you know, what waste streams does somebody else have that you could utilize for your facility? 
and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And related to that, my second point is really embracing the circular economy. So that closed loop system of, again, waste to resource, like it's a continuous circular loop. Others refer to it as cradle to grave, right? Like Mm -hmm. holistically about your food production um, and the signs coming out that you're embracing and what is your waste stream that somebody else's resource stream and vice versa. That is absolutely important. Um, But location will matter uh, with regards to efficiencies, whether you're talking about the stewardship um, and the the quality of the product that you're growing, but also the bottom line um, of the cost to grow that product. Mm. An amazing, uh, rich discussion that I think we could continue on for at least another hour without any trouble at all. But unfortunately, our time has uh, come to an end. And I wanted to thank you both for your time and your insights today. Uh, This is such an important topic for everybody, and I really do appreciate you both sharing your knowledge and experience with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks also to our listeners. If you're enjoying Side Dish, please let us know by leaving a review from wherever you source your podcasts or by connecting with IFT. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at IFT and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and or LinkedIn. For more on this wonderful subject, please be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in the subject you're interested in into the search box and you can gain a ton of extra resources. Thank you for listening to Side Dish today. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Have a great day, everyone. <music>